Okay, so to start off this class, uh, I will use a phrase that I've used several times here recently, but uh, frustration occurs when expectation does not meet reality, right? And so to set that uh, as our our guideline here in the beginning, I want to let you know how I tend to conduct my class. Um, I've already been picked on a few times about uh, being asked difficult questions. I am fine with difficult questions. Let's bring them on. The format of these type of classes are very uh, beneficial to us all because even though I'm leading the class, we are all learning from each other and contributing. I am not afraid to farm out any difficult questions to all the individuals in this room. I'm sure collectively we can get those answered. Um, Let's also remember the golden rule. By that, I mean Matthew 7, verse 12. uh, Treat others the way you would be treated. I would consider you my friend. We are teaching and learning important things tonight and uh, in the future, and so if you find anything I am teaching to be error, please bring that to my attention and let me know. I'd be happy to address those things and consider you a friend if you would do so. All right, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, but that's not where we're going to begin because... Last Wednesday, we were in numbers, and so now we have to realign ourselves with where we are in the timeline. Um, And so let's go back, actually, a few years ago when Brother Leland was taking us through Genesis, right? And we went through Genesis, and we had a lot of firsts. I may not be exactly correct on that. I have had a child since then and not slept in about a year. I think that was two years ago. So, you know, I may be a little uh, iffy on my dates, But we started off in in Genesis, and we looked at a lot of firsts, a lot of beginnings in that book. We also had the covenant with Abraham, uh, that he would be this chosen, uh, the leader of this chosen nation uh, that would uh, have the Messiah come through. And so after that, we uh, were taken through Exodus by Brother David. And in that class, we really focused in on learning that God is faithful, right? God is faithful to his people. He protected them. He got them out of the land of Egypt. He, uh, you know, uh, paved the way for them and provided them everything they needed when they were wandering there. After that, we were taken through Deuteronomy by Brother Bain. Uh, we were warned in that book to follow God's law and the importance of following that law. <clears throat> we then went into the book of Judges and saw what happens when you don't follow God's law. Right? What happens when you try to do it yourself and you put God's law to the side? We then went to Numbers, and I think one thing we can see from the book of Numbers is there are tangible consequences to not following God's law, right? The numbers counted over and over of people who died or were judged because of not following that law, because of breaking that command. And so tonight we're in 1 Samuel, but... You know, thinking about uh, judges and and all the time periods that we've gone through, I just kind of wanted to give us an idea of how many years we're talking about here. Uh, Sometimes going through those books, we can do it fairly quickly. We can do it in two years. But you're talking about a period from Abraham to Moses of about 635 years. A period of Joshua through the book of Judges of about 350 to 400 years. So it's not quite as quick as we tend to see it when we're reading through it, right? Um, We look at it as chapters. Well, these are generations of people, right? Uh, We talk in the book of Joshua at the end, you know, uh, or at the very beginning of the book of Judges, Joshua dies, and then there arises a generation that did not know him, right? And that's kind of when they start falling away and, and doing their own thing. But you're talking about in that period of Judges about 
you know, we don't really know exactly, but, you know, if you're talking about standard generation numbers, you're talking about 14 to 16 generations happening between that time period. And so that's, that's a lot of time. Uh, it's a lot of people. It's a long period of time for you to go without getting the proper teaching and instruction that you were supposed to be getting because those people left God's law once that generation died out after Joshua, right? And so uh, that's kind of where we are when we get into this book of 1 Samuel. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we start off with Samuel is an old man. So what happened with Samuel, right? Let's get some key uh, points about Samuel. Uh, Samuel is the son of Elkanah and Hannah. Uh, He's a son born uh, from the faithfulness of Hannah, his mother, who prayed for him that he would be born, prayed fervently. Um, Remember, Eli thought that she was drunk, um, but she said, no, I'm, I'm praying to the Lord. And the Lord remembered her, right? The Lord remembered her prayer and blessed her with a son. She dedicated that son to the Lord. And so uh, Samuel, after he is weaned, is given to Eli to fulfill that vow. And then there's some major events that occur in Samuel's life. Uh, After that, Samuel receives some visions about uh, Eli's unfaithful sons, uh, that the Lord is going to judge them and the Lord is going to judge Eli. That's in uh, chapters 2 and 4. The Ark of the Covenant later is taken by the Philistines in chapter 5. Um, they, you know, the children of Israel thought they could just bring the ark into the, into the war, and that meant God would be on their side, but they were sorely mistaken, and the ark was taken from them. Um, it was then returned in chapter 6, and in chapter 7, uh, Samuel helped defeat the Philistines and stop that oppression at that time. So, really, it's a, it's a standard story that we see in the book of Judges, right? Samuel is one of those judges who comes on the scene and judges the people and saves them from that oppression. And then uh, we see in the end of chapter 7 that uh, Samuel judges Israel all the days of his life. He goes on this circuit from Bethel to Gilgal and Mizpah. He judges Israel in all these places, and then he returns to his home in Ramah, um, and there he judged Israel. Um, So in chapter 8, we have... uh, you know, Samuel's old, and so he's wanting to retire, and he appoints his sons to rule over, to judge the land, right? That's basically what happens. Samuel's old, you know, the circuit is what he's been doing. He decides to appoint his sons as judges and sets them to be those judges on the land. What's the problem with Samuel's sons? Yeah, they're wicked. They're corrupt, right? They take bribes. They pervert justice. They uh, are wicked. Now, that you know, again, remember, we're coming off of the book of Judges, right? The end of the book of Judges, not a pretty picture. Are there a lot of righteous people that are really concerned about these wicked judges? No. Probably it's wicked people concerned about the wicked judges because they're not getting their justice, right? I can't afford the bribe that this other person's paying, so therefore it's injustice to me, and that's not okay, right? Corruption ends up being hated by everybody, right? Even the corrupt people, because eventually there's no standard anymore, right? How are you supposed to play the game when there's no standard? How are you supposed to know the rules? Well, when there are no rules, it's difficult for everybody, even the wicked, right? And so 
the people come and they gather together and they come to Samuel. And, uh, you know, let's back up a little bit before that. Let's just do the first question in our list of questions here. What is the state of the people, the, just the general state? Again, the end of Judges is what I'm thinking about. Yeah, they're all doing what's right in their own eyes. Does a, does a nation function well when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes? No, it doesn't function well. Why does it not function well? Yeah, there's no unity, right? Uh, if I'm doing what's right in my eyes and you're doing what's right in your eyes, are we going to be on the same page? No, not, not all the time, right? Because what if something comes up between the two of us? Right? You know what's right for you. I know what's right for me. Are we going to agree and be able to get along? No. right. And so at the end of Judges, you have this example of that not working. And what happens to the tribe of Benjamin? They're almost wiped out. They're reduced down to how many men? 600. Right? You're talking about when they get here into the land, how many people are there? Right? We talked about a couple, maybe a couple million This one tribe is reduced down to 600 because of that civil war, right? Because people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, That's not a way, a good way to rule a nation. And so this corruption gets to a turning point. It gets to a head. And in verse 5, what do the people ask Samuel? We want a king, right? We want a king. And what do we want the king to? To do for us. Why do we want this king? Yeah, we want a king to judge us like all the other nations, right? What is the leading desire in them for this king? I want to be like everybody else. These other nations have a king. The Philistines have a king, right? Uh, the Moabites have a king. The Amalekites have a king. Why aren't we have a king? Right? What's... You know, what's going on here? We want, we want to be like everybody else. All these other nations have a king. They're all picking on us. They're all beating up on us all the time. The problem is we don't have a king, right? Yeah, they want the king to solve their problems, right? We'll uh, see that later on. Um, but this idea of, you know, wanting to be like everybody else is something that we struggle with on a regular basis. And by we, I mean humankind, mankind, the world, right? The world struggles with this on a regular basis. But the funny thing is we don't just struggle with wanting to be like everybody else. We struggle with wanting to be different too, right? I want to be different. I want to be unique. I want to be myself. But I don't want myself and my uniqueness and my difference to be different than everybody else somehow, right? Like we we all want to be on the same side. We all want to be on the same team. We all want to be the same, kind of. We don't all want to like the same sports teams, right? Um, there's a lot of differences that we like to have, but, you know, we always have this, this constant problem of we want to be like everybody else. I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be treated like everybody else. Sometimes I don't want to be treated like everybody else, right? It's a struggle that we have, and And it's a struggle that the children of Israel have, right? They have this desire to be like everybody else and to want what everybody else has. Um, Why is this bad? Why is this a problem? Yeah. Yeah. 
Right, yes. They already had a king, and they're rejecting God. That's right. The, God chose these people, right? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, God chose them. God chose this nation to be his people. And so they're going against that by wanting to be all the, like all these other nations who are not part of God's people, right? We're not chosen by God. In uh, Joshua 24, it's a little different. Uh, Joshua chapter 24, we'll flip over there and read that here. <clears throat> Verse 22 says, Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for, the Lord, for yourselves the Lord to serve him. So not only did God choose the children of Israel, but who did the children of Israel choose? They chose God back during that time of Joshua, right? That's part of the problem. They chose God back during that time of Joshua. They made a vow that they would choose God. Okay, we will choose God. Choose the Lord. And Joshua said, okay, here's a rock. This rock is a witness to everything you've said here that you chose God. You chose the Lord, right? But then we get to the book of Judges. We get to the first couple chapters. The generation arises that forgets the Lord, and they're no longer choosing the Lord anymore. Right? They want to be like everybody else. Part, another part of this problem, I think, of wanting to be like everybody else is kind of what we've already said, which is we want to be like everybody else when it comes to all the good things that we see that they have with those, those things that we want. Right? We want a king like all these other nations because you know, later on we see they say, we want this king to fight our battles for us. Right? We don't want to go to war for ourselves. We want the king to battle for us, so he'll do it, and then we don't have to do it anymore. Right? We're tired of doing that. Um, we want the king to judge over the nations. We're tired of going to your corrupt sons who are you know, perverting these, this justice, and so we don't want to go to them anymore. We want to go to this king who's going to solve these problems. Well, do they think about the other side of that coin, the other problems that can occur with a king? Right? That king can be... Un- just. That king can be unfair. That king can tax you until you're poor, right? That king can do all these different things, right? Um, They only want the good without the bad. And that's a lot of the problem that we ourselves run into, right? We see the world, and we look at uh, maybe different congregations. We look at different uh, practices. We look at different things where where we look and see they get all these numbers, right? They, They just, they bring in all these people, Sometimes we want to be able to bring in more people. But the problem is, what are they bringing those people into? Right? They're not bringing them in to learn about God. They're not bringing them in to learn God's word, to be saved from their sins, to follow God's will. They're, a lot of times they're bringing those people in for a free meal, for entertainment, for some emotional high that they get in that you know, service. Uh, with all the things going on, and it's very exciting, right? What are you being brought into, right? What do you actually desire? Are you willing to take the good with the bad? Because when it gets to hard times, will those people that came in for the entertainment, the free food, and all those things, will they stay? And the answer is no. They're not going to stay, right? They'll, they'll be gone. When it gets tough, when you ask things of them, they'll be gone. They'll leave, um, and, and that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to want to become like other people because you don't necessarily know what negative things you're going to get with that, right? 
Any comments on these, these two questions, this desire to be like everyone? Yes, Brother Bruce. Well, in verse 8, there's a, there's a statement of God's overwhelming power that they had seen uh, being delivered from Egypt into the present time. Uh, but yet, looking at all of the kings that God had destroyed, including uh, Pharaoh's army, and, and he had stopped Pharaoh from doing his, uh, they still wanted a human being uh, who was no match for God's power uh, to be over them. And it's, it's just, you know, I'm sometimes quick to, to go and, and point fingers at them and say, you dummies, you know, you know, are you blind? But the Pharisees were blind, the Sadducees were blind, and sometimes I've been blind. We all are, but I just think it's an amazing thing that God makes this statement in verse 8. You know, they they just don't get it, even though they've seen it. And it, it compares to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of those during during Jesus' time as well. But it shows us how... Sometimes we never change. We never understand what we have in Jesus uh, and in God. That we would choose a king with earthly might uh, over God who controls it all. It's just, just an amazing thing to think about. Yeah, it's true. I mean... <clears throat> You, uh, you think about Samuel's reaction, which kind of goes hand in hand with that. You know, Samuel is displeased by this, uh, this comment, this request from the people. And I think it's because, as you're saying, he sees it. He sees the problem. He sees that they have rejected God. He sees that they are trading all-powerful God for a man who's going to, you know, subject them to all these different things. And and, and Samuel's just brokenhearted by that, right? Why would they request this, this terrible thing to reject God and, and demand for a, a human being, a flawed man, to rule over them instead? But the Lord already knew that this was going to happen, right? The Lord planned for this. And we're going to go to, oh, Jonathan, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that's a quite all right. But just to affirm what, has, what is being said right here in... 1 Samuel 8, Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Verse 7 is, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. That's what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Any other comments on that? I think about that idea of, you know, rejecting God and turning yourself over to a man. When you think about coming off of the book of Judges, right? Uh, You know, you get Judges, then you get Ruth as a kind of a palate cleanser to remind you, yes, there is good people still in the world. Um, But in Judges, it's such a dark, terrible picture of mankind, right? But there's this bright light that's there, and it's God redeeming the people every time. He brings them back every time. Right? He pulls them back, and they repent of their sins for a little while, and then they go back into it. Right, But there's still that pull back and repenting of their sins. It reminds me of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Did Ananias and Sapphira get a second chance 
No. Did they deserve a second chance? I mean, they broke God's law, right? You break God's law, there's consequences. But God's the one who determines, you know, God's love is what gives us that second chance to provide a way for us to redeem ourselves, to return back to him, right? How much does God love this people? He was willing to to return them back so many times in the book of Judges. And here you see the Lord saying, telling Samuel, listen to the people. They want to do this. We'll give it to them, right? But there's going to be some restrictions, right? There's going to be some, uh, some problems that they're going to have with this king. There's going to be some issues that are going to occur because they demand this king at this time. But it's not outside of God's uh, plans, right? God didn't, this, they didn't catch God off guard by demanding a, a human king, Right in, uh, in Deuteronomy 17, we see that God already had this in the plan, in the law. Um, but uh, before we get there, I want to turn to Joshua chapter 24 again. <clears throat> um, in Joshua chapter 24, I just want to read verses uh, 14 through 25. Uh, very quickly here, because I think uh, this just kind of drives home the heart of the people um, and their, you know, their wishy-washiness, if you will. Um, Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of which your father served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who live in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God." Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So, Joshua tells the people, you got to pick who you want to serve, right? And in this case, he's talking about the gods. You're going to serve the gods of the land, or are you going to serve the Lord and follow him? And they say, we will serve the Lord, and they give this nice story of all the things they remember from Bible class and serving the Lord and all the good things the Lord did for them. Did they drive all the people out of the land as they're portraying here? No, they didn't, right? But sometimes our memory is a little bit rosier, than the actual truth, right? Um, Joshua calls the people out, right? The people say, we will serve the Lord. What does Joshua say? You can't do it. You can't do it. And I think Joshua would be one who would know that about the people, right? He is the one who Moses had to tell and teach. These people are going to be a struggle, right? You're going to have to drag them to do all these things. And Joshua did that. I think, to the best of his ability, 
and beyond what I would have expected at that time. But when Joshua is gone and the people are to themselves, they abandon God and they do their own thing for a while. And then they realize that doing their own thing is not great, right? <laughs> it's, it's not good. There's a lot of problems. It doesn't go well. And so after 400 years of that, they decide, okay, we'll change the plan. We'll pick a, a king. That's what we need, right? That'll solve our problems. We need a king. God planned all of this. In Deuteronomy 17, he, he gives the outline of what a king would need to do. But I just want to go back and, and talk about for a second in question three uh, of our lesson here. What does a king provide to a nation? Yeah, he provides authority. Okay, so whether you're talking about moral or legal authority, right? The king provides some kind of stability there. Uh, they typically set up the laws of the land that would occur, right? What else does a king provide to a nation? Identity, someone to rally behind, right? You have this physical person that you can see wearing some kind of fancy armor, maybe on a big tall horse or a big fancy chariot that you can parade around and you know, rally the people behind. What else does a king provide? Soldiers, yeah, protection. He protects your lands. He protects your crops. He protects your possessions, the things that you have to some extent. What else? Yeah, security and enforcement of law. Uh, Again, legal side, but also economic security, right? A lot of times the king's involved in taxes, how trade flows, things like that as well. Yeah, he doesn't just leave them, you know, typically it's not just left up to chance who the next king will be, right? There's usually some kind of plan in place for succession, a line of succession maybe from the king's family, things like that. The problem with all these things is that, yes, those things are all a benefit to having a king in a nation. Is Israel missing any of these things? Yeah, it's going to have a price tag now with the king that they they are picking. But with the king that they currently have, right, the Lord, right, the Lord's providing them with all these things already. I think part of their problem, though, is that you can't physically see the Lord in a chariot or on a horse. And so they don't see all these blessings as coming from the Lord, right? It takes an amount of faith that they aren't willing to have. Um. They see, you know, on the opposing battle side, they see their king, right? Uh, They see their king leading their army and and getting them all these things, which end up being theirs, right? They're taking all of their stuff. Um, But they don't see the Lord physically leading, you know, his army or physically providing all these things. But again, remember in Joshua, they do know that the Lord has provided for them, has saved them multiple times. They have all these things documented, and and the Levites are supposed to be teaching the people all these things, right? What's the problem? Right. It doesn't appear that they're doing their job. And so, you know, think back to Joshua. Can one man make a nation follow God? I would say he can help Right? He can help. Joshua did a lot to, make, to help the children of Israel follow the Lord for 
all of his life. And even then, he only got him to keep following the Lord until the men who knew him had died, right? So what does it take to have this established faith and, and belief and trust in the Lord? Heart. Takes the heart. And to get the heart, you have to have the teaching, right? To get the heart, you have to have the teaching. And who's supposed to be doing the teaching? The priests. If you go back to the law, technically it's everybody, right? The priests, you are supposed to teach your sons as well, right? You're, the family is supposed to be doing the teaching. The priests are supposed to be doing the teaching. Everybody is supposed to be doing the teaching. And if that had been occurring, then you may not end up in this position where they're demanding a physical man be their king and lead them like these other nations. And so in Joshua chapter 8, first, or excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the Lord tells Samuel to listen to their voice and warn them about the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I... Basically, if I was to summarize what God tells Samuel, it's let them have it, right? They want a king, I'll give them exactly what they want with all the problems included, right? All the negatives included that they're not thinking about, I'll let them have it, they'll get a taste of it, and they'll probably decide that they had made a bad choice, right? Um, And so Samuel speaks the words of the people, or the words of the Lord to the people, and Uh, He tells them there's a procedure for the king. He's going to take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots among his horsemen. They'll run before his chariots. He'll appoint himself commanders of thousands and fifties. Some will do his plowing uh, and reap his harvest. Some will make weapons of war for him and his chariots. Uh, He'll take your daughters for perfumers and cooks. All the things that you need in a castle, in in an established capital, right? All these things that you need. He'll take everything he needs from you, right? So there's going to be a cost here. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take your vineyards. He'll take your olive groves. You got to have some kind of tax, right? If you're going to run the government, it's not free. So you got to pay for it some way. Uh, So it's going to come from you. He'll take a tenth of your seed, your vineyards to give to his officers, his servants. He'll take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, use them for his work. Tenth of your flocks, You yourselves will become his servants, and then you'll cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And what do the people say? Bring it on. That's what we want, right? Bring it on. I think sometimes we're all in that position. Uh, We all end up in that place where We think we know what's best. We think we know what we can handle. We think we know what we can take. We think we can pay this price. And we say, yeah, I'm going to do it, right? I'm all in. And then we immediately, or maybe a little bit later, regret everything we've done, right? We should have listened. There's nothing wrong with being patient in making very serious decisions, right? Um. It seems like the children of Israel here, they, they come to Samuel. They say, we want a king. Samuel says, okay, here's, here's what's going to happen. Giving them an opportunity to say, okay, well, you know what? Let's think about that for a minute, and then we'll get back to you, <laughs> right? But no, they say, ah, you're just trying to scare us. It's no big deal. We want this, right? This is what we want. Give it to us. And so uh, 
here, we're, that's what we're going to get into next class. Any comments on uh, Samuel and the warnings before we switch over to Deuteronomy? Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 17. As we stated, uh, the Lord uh, seems to have provided information for a king in the law before the people even asked, right? So it's not a surprise to the Lord that eventually one day the children of Israel will ask for a king and there will be rules regarding that king. I just want to say that uh, I think it's important to note in the beginning of this chapter, uh, in chapter 17, verses 1 through about 13, there's a lot mentioned about what the Lord is providing to the nation before he says anything about, here's the rules for a king. And I think that's interesting because of what we've talked about with Samuel, right? uh, And the children of Israel at that time. When you think about all the things that God had already been providing them, and they, they go ahead and say, no, we want a, a physical king. It seems to line up with this entire chapter in verse 17 of Deuteronomy, or uh, excuse me, entire chapter in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. But beginning in verse 14, we have some rules for a king. And uh, the Lord says, uh, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations, all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Uh, So this isn't going to be something that the children of Israel get to decide or they get to have a committee and they they pick the best of among them or maybe the the elders of the tribes get together and then they vote on who's going to be their king. No, who's going to pick the the person to be king? God, right? Does God have the right to do that? Yes, why? Why? He rules over all the nations. Also, this is his chosen nation. He chose this nation, so he gets to decide who rules it, right? Uh, the Lord is going to be deciding. But uh, what else is it about this man? It's from their own, their own who, from themselves, right? From their own countrymen. It can't be a foreigner. You can't say, well, you know, the Amalekites over here have this really, really smart guy who'd be a great leader, right? He knows his stuff when it comes to food. He knows his stuff when it comes to tactics. Like, we, we need this guy. Right? No, they can't do that. Right? It has to be from themselves. And why would that be the case? That's true. A foreigner may not be worshiping God. Also, we've already discussed in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Are the people supposed to intermarry with the other nations? No. They're specifically told not to intermarry with the other nations, right? And why is that the case? What is it about this people? Yeah, they're supposed to be holy, is essentially what everybody's saying, right? They're supposed to be holy and set apart. They're not supposed to have these other nations come in because they will pull them away, right? They'll draw them out after their own gods. We've already seen this in Numbers. We've already seen this in Judges. If they intermarry with the people, it's not long before they're just ripped apart away from God, right? So their king, their leader, would need to be from among themselves, right, in order to maintain this holiness. Uh, Verse 16, what else can a a king not get for themselves? Multiply horses. Why? Right. Horses at this time are a significant military advantage, right? You, You have... People on foot fighting battles. If you have horses that you add in, you have more maneuverability. 
you have you know, strength uh, to just power through, right? You have height advantage. You have all kinds of things, right? Um, and what that does is it makes you rely on your army. It makes you rely on your forces. It makes you rely on your own power in order to get things done, right? And what is God trying to impress on them with this? Who are they going to rely on still, even with a king? They're going to rely on the Lord, right? The Lord is still going to be the one giving them the victory in the battle, regardless of whether they have a man sitting on a throne, right? The Lord is still going to be the one giving them the victory. Again, as Brother Bruce already stated, he rules in the nations. He's going to rule in this one as well. Yeah, he, God ordained and set up government, right? We didn't come up with it on our own. It was given to us by God. Um, who are they not to return to? Not to return to Egypt. Why? Yeah, God just pulled you out of there. Don't go back, right? <laughs> uh, you, you spent a long time in captivity to that nation. Do not go back to them begging you know, for help because that's not where you need to get it from, right? You were, you were pulled out of there for a reason, and you need to rely on God. Verse 17, what else should a king not do? Multiply wives. Why not? Yeah, it'll draw you away, right? It, it, again, Solomon is a good example of this. We'll talk about him later. But it'll turn your heart away from the Lord, right? You'll follow after these wives uh, that'll follow after their foreign gods. Uh, what else should a king not multiply? Wealth, right? Wait a second. Okay. The other stuff I understand we need to rely on the Lord, but you've got to have money to rule a nation, right? So what's up with this not multiplying wealth? For himself, right? Again, I still think it's the idea of relying on God. Do you want a, a king, a man in charge, whose purpose, sole purpose, is to make themselves the wealthiest man in the world? No, no, right? Because if that is their sole goal, how are they going to do that? First off, probably the easiest way possible, which is take it from you, right? You're his subjects. He can forcefully take it from you, so therefore he will, right? Um, when, you're, when your goal and your focus is on monetary things, your care and concern for the people that you're ruling is not going to be there, right? You're going to make uh, allowances. You're going to cut corners. You're going to compromise. And again, you're eventually going to have your heart turned away in all the things that you have, right? Remember Hezekiah, uh, one of his great sins was to take uh, the foreign dignitaries around and show them all the wealth that they had, right? His heart was uh, turned to all that wealth, right? And so we don't, we don't need to uh, have a king that focuses on those things. Yes, Brian? The whole thing, people came to him and asked to lighten the burden. And he said, no, I'm going to increase the burden. And it seemed like it was driven by that desire for monetary gain. Yeah, him and his, uh, him and his cronies, right? His friends that gave him that bad advice because, again, they, they liked the things that Solomon had accumulated, right? You have that King Solomon that had just uh, been reigning and had built all these amazing things, and, and you just want to increase that, right, as, as his son. Right. Right, it, it directs you down paths you would not otherwise go, right? And again, I think that's because it removes that reliance on God, right? You, uh, you it end up relying on all those things you've accumulated. Good comments. 
what else are the, is the king supposed to do? Verse 18. Write a copy of the law. Not just write a copy of the law, but write a copy of the law with who? Yeah, with, with a member of the Levites. I think that's kind of key. Why would that be key? What happens if the king writes himself a copy of the law and he doesn't write it exactly right? I mean, it, it could become a problem, right, later. <laughs> because what is the king supposed to do after he writes a copy of this law? He's supposed to read it. He's supposed to learn from it, to fear the Lord, right? He's supposed to observe the commandments in that, that law. And if he had miscopied something, if he had made his own edit to it, um, you know, what would have that have done to the nation? It would have been detrimental, right? It would have been a, a major problem for the, for the people if the king copied the law in the first place, right? Do we have recorded any king that we know of who, who did this? Not that I know of. I'm not aware of any. Um, if anyone finds one, let me know. We do have some kings that find the law, right? We have some kings that find a copy of the law and then have it read to them. But as far as I'm aware, and, uh, you know, I've taught a few classes on Chronicles and Judges. I'm not, or excuse me, Chronicles and Kings. I'm not aware of any king that you have documented that they wrote this. Now, does that mean that they did not? I don't think it does necessarily. But can we see from their conduct where some of the kings in the future definitely did not? Yes, I believe so, right? Um, But think about that, that task of writing the law. I don't know about you, but for me, when I write something, it helps cement it in my mind, right? If I'm in a class uh, and I'm learning, I'm typically taking notes, right? If it's something that I want to remember for any length of time, I'm taking some kind of notes. It may not be very detailed notes, but they're... If there's something I want to remember, I'm going to write it. If it's something I want to remember a lot, I'm going to write it multiple times, right? If it's something I want to just rock solid, established in my memory, I'm going to write it over and over and over again. Because there's something about that physical act of writing it down. I don't know if it's because, you know, it's a kinetic thing. Maybe I'm a kinetic learner more than I I thought. But there's that, that physical act of writing. But I think it's also when you're writing, what else are you doing? You're reading. Uh, if you're, you know, I had an English teacher in 10th grade, probably taught me more about English and literature than any other teacher I ever had then or since. She would make you write it in pen and in cursive. And why did she do that? Well, she did that because if you have to write it in pen and you have to write it in cursive, what do you have to do? You have to focus, right? You have to be careful because I don't know about you, but uh, you know, maybe when you were in school, you wrote more in cursive. It, by the time I was in 10th grade, we weren't writing in cursive very much anymore. It's a lot more print. Cursive was kind of going to the wayside. But that teacher, yeah, we had to write in cursive uh, for every paper that we did and in pen. And I really appreciate that. Um, that kind of focus really helps you learn. And I think that is the intention here, right? The intention here is for the king to learn. And why is it important for a king to learn? He's the leader, but also he's a, he's a person, right? He's a person. Is a king born with all the knowledge they need to know how to rule a nation and 
do everything they need to do. No, they're not. And so they need to learn just as much as we do, right? And maybe even more so because of the amount of responsibility that's put on their shoulders to lead that nation and to do it effectively in the way that God would have them to, right? To rely on God. And so uh, next class will be in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. Thank you very much.